can turn back in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. We will briefly pause in the Gospel of Luke for a moment to respond to our Lord's his encouragement and admonition. The uh, event, the little clip that your elder was talking about, I would recommend you watch it. You laughed, but it really is analogous to the struggle of the life of faith. You can look it up under iguana being chased by snakes. Uh, Look at it and then think it through. Okay, think it really through because, again, it appears funny. It's an island that I would never want to accidentally land on. I have some confidence in my running skills, but those was just too many snakes on that island. And you want to look at it because it's a metaphor of the battle we go through spiritually. Okay, and so uh, he had to fight for his life and and we do too as people of God. The portion of scripture that we're in in the Luke's account is really that which we have called for uh, millenniums as a tradition Palm Sunday. It's the week before our Lord's ultimate crucifixion. And what we will be doing over the next several weeks is going through what I stated last week was kind of a, a brief terse lesson on Christology, who Jesus is in his eternality, who he is in his humanity, what that constitutes in terms of his hypostases, the divine nature of God and the human nature of God. All of that is prerequisite to enjoying the child that is born for those who are believers. So we're going to be working through that next Sunday as well as in our Tuesday classes. So if you guys want to a bone up on your Christology, keep up with our classes. I, I really want to recommend that to you. Talking about, you know, snakes and, and assaults and, and attacks, as we're going to see today, if you and I are not continually grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can be moved away from the hope of the gospel and not even know it because you're not grounded in the reality of what the Bible says concretely about who Christ is. I don't know if you know it, but all over the world, Christ has been modified. He has been altered. He has been denied. He has been usurped. There are all kinds of ways in which people are trying to describe the son of the living God that does not comport with scripture. We call this heresy or falsehood or false doctrine. And as a child of God, you need to know that not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, knows the Lord. Well, before us is an interesting account in the Gospel of Luke. I'm not going to be here long because I want to pick up on where we were in our Joshua account as we close out with Joshua, the old man, uh, talking to the children of Israel as to what they should do upon his death. But in our account, we have in this Luke account a paradox, do we not? I call this the paradox of our master's work. He is riding upon the foal of a female donkey. For those of you who don't like uh, PG-13 language, he is riding upon the foal of an ass. As Zechariah puts it in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, he is fulfilling prophecy. The language is explicit when we get it up on the screen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Do what? Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes unto you. 
He is righteous. Zedek is the Hebrew term. He is just and having salvation. He is also lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the coat, the foal of an ass. And if you know the account that prefaces where we are, Jesus has just told his disciples to go get a coat from someone that knew Jesus. This was the little young foal of a mother donkey. And this foal had never been written before. And so Jesus is riding this little foal along with his mother into Jerusalem. And the people are shouting with great enthusiasm, enthusiasm, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And they are laying out garments before him, as you know, the text speaks, coats and clothing and then branches that are laid out before him as he enters into Jerusalem. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is a big ado. And what the text tells us is that the Pharisees wanted to censor Jesus. Do you guys remember that? Tell your disciples, tell all these people to stop shouting Hosanna, Hosanna, because the Pharisees did not believe that he was Hosanna. Now, we know the Bible is fulfilling all kinds of prophecy here. Again, Zechariah chapter nine, but also Psalm 118 as well. And notice the paradox. The king of glory is riding in not on a white horse, but a little donkey, a little donkey. That's the paradox. That's the paradox of the gospel that most people don't get. Now, this donkey is to be commended, is she not? Because she has the privilege of exalting the king of kings and the Lord of lords. She has the privilege of fulfilling scripture and being the lowly donkey, the lowly working animal, that lowly creature that allows her God to use her to present him to the people in Jerusalem. Hence, this is a far cry from Balaam's ass, is it not? Now, the question you and I have to ask again as we deal with our Lord's response, who's riding you, Balaam or Jesus? Pastor, what are you inferring? Yes, you and I are asses. We're donkeys. Somebody's riding you. Somebody's controlling you. May it be the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't mind being God's donkey. I don't mind him riding me. I do not mind him being the master and me being the servant. How about you? He is the high and lofty God, according to Isaiah 57, 15, who dwells with the lowly, the broken and the contrite to revive the heart of the lowly. There is your paradox. The high, infinite, holy, perfect, impeccable God dwells with lowly sinners. That is the gospel, is it not? Our Lord Jesus Christ made it very plain to those men when they were when they were disturbed about him, uh, about, about all of this shouting and noise being made. And over in verse 39, we read and some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke your disciples. And he answered unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. 
Now, again, we love to sing these biblical songs, but do you even have an idea what that means? The Lord Jesus was letting the Pharisees know he will be exalted. He's letting the Pharisees know that the earth will actually acknowledge him as its sovereign Lord. He's letting the common people, the human beings, the creatures that supposedly know him better than any of the other creatures, animate or inanimate. He's letting them know that if they don't praise me, the stones will cry out. Will they, ladies and gentlemen? Can they? And do they? Your Bible tells you that the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth, the firmament, The word of God runs throughout creation and you can hear it everywhere if you have what? Ears to hear. Our master is using the same phraseology that John the Baptist used. You remember when the Pharisees came to him in the end of John's ministry at the River Jordan and they were boasting that they were Abraham's seed. And what John said was this. Do not think that because you are Abraham's seed, you are safe. For God is able to make these stones give him glory. These stones, these stones. Why are we talking about stones? Because God uses stones in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to let us know of his enduring testimony to humanity and against humanity and for humanity. Stones were those mediating mechanisms that God used in the Old Testament by which he would write his decrees and laws. And in fact, you and I know the way our language evolved and developed. It started with what we call the tradition of oracular speech, vocalizing the legends and vocalizing the stories, but eventually they were written down on stone. We call these hieroglyphics, do we not? They were written on suniforms. These are called steely scrolls upon which the legends or the stories or the narratives were written. And why were they written? To outlast human beings so that the testimony of the events of our life in the world can get passed from one generation to the next generation and to the next generation. Hence our study for today as we have it arise, move and go. These stones shall do what? Cry out. They will. Go with me back now to Joshua 24. And let's just work briefly through some of the points we picked up last week. And our main emphasis will be on what these stones represent in terms of God's will for you and me in terms of God's will for his people. Now, last time you and I dealt with the second point, which becomes our first point in our outline, retained by what? Retained by faith. What we stated was is that God had brought Israel into these blessings where they are now by his grace. And we affirm, do we not, that everything that you and I have is a consequence of the grace of God. Can you say a hearty amen with me on that? Right. Smart people know that you don't have anything that you didn't receive. Smart people know that you don't have life and breath and health and strength. You don't have your position. You don't have your wealth. You don't have your problems. You don't have your pain, except the Lord allowed it to happen. And humble people know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Is that right? And therefore, humble people don't find themselves always complaining about everything under the sun because God is able to make it work for his glory and for our good. In our account 
Joshua is speaking to the people of God to let them know that he's leaving this world. He's about to go to glory. He will die at 110 years old, will he not? Most scholars would say that Joshua entered into the promised land around 40, 1450 B.C. We know that's the case. Some of us have locked it in at 1447 B.C. Joshua enters into the land of Canaan, taking over from Moses at about 80 years old. He's anywhere from 70, 80 years old. Just to use that as an approximation, because we know he was older than those who perished in the wilderness. That had to be 20 or more. We also know he was in the wilderness for 40 years, do we not? That's at least 60, right? And so most scholars put him at 70 or 80. And we've talked about this before. Moses was 80 years old when God called him to the work. Aaron was 83. And Miriam had to be a bit older because she was the oldest sister. So you and I have no excuse for being 55 or 60 years old or 70 years old talking about not being able to be used by the Lord. He might want to take you out to the Sinai Desert and help fix all this crazy mess that's going over there right now. Who will go for Jesus? See, the head's not going up real good. There we go. All right. Uh, Don't ever think you're too old, because if he gives you his grace, he's able to do above and beyond whatever you can ask or think if it's his will to use you. See, in the Christian life, we have bought a lot in America. Now, that's a whole story in itself. But please listen to me. There's no such thing as retirement in Christ. There's always work to do. He is a savior to the uttermost to them that trust him. Do you believe that? That means he's a savior from the womb to the what? He's a savior of babies and he's a savior of men and women hanging on a cross about to breathe their last breath. This is why we do convalescent ministry. This is why we meet men and women in their last stages of life to make sure at least give them a knowledge of the only way of salvation because we believe God is gracious enough to save people before they breathe their last breath. So you have work that you can do for the Lord. We talked about the idea of being uh, of it being obtained by grace and then retained by what? Faith. And when I asserted retaining what God gives to you through his grace by faith, faith is a paradoxical principle as well. For some people, they want to have a definition of faith that constitutes a kind of passive acquiescence or what is called essentia to what God has said he will do for you. That is a kind of faith, but that faith is completely inadequate in terms of what the Bible teaches. Let me uh, let me see if I can establish that. We do hear the gospel preached and we do believe that gospel, do we not? But that faith of essentia must also show up in an active way by which you and I now operate out of a faith of commitment to God. So we learned last week that faith without works is what? James made it very clear that faith without works is dead. And we looked at a couple of passages because we wanted to once again understand why Joshua has been compelled to bring all of these people together to talk to them and bear record one more time before he dies. And what I shared with you as an insight, and we'll be going there in a moment, was Joshua was very worried about the heart condition of the people that had just done 30 more years with him. See, when he got into the land of promise, he was there 30 years. If he came in at 80 and if he died at 110, I know, I know it takes a little while, but you'll get there. 
It was 30 years of labor, was it not? And by the time he is ready to close his eyes in death and take his flight to glory, he's doing what every good parent should do. And that is to secure his children in an understanding that you can't play with the grace of God. This is why when we talk about I have faith, the New Testament is very quick to demonstrate that faith has inalienable and incontrovertible works that must manifest up out of that confession of faith. Confession, in other words, has to have a conduct behind it. And so the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, these words commending a church that was really committed to the gospel, by the way. If you look at the church at Thessalonica, they were really committed to the gospel. He says, now I have given thanks to God always for you, remembering without ceasing your what? Work of faith. That is a paradox, isn't it? Because faith is a principle and work now is the evidence of it, right? One might say that we are saved by faith and not by works. That is absolutely true. Anchor it down. You are saved by faith through grace and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. You get that part wrong, you totally get the gospel wrong. If you get that you're saved both by your faith and by your works, you have totally missed the gospel. Your work plus Christ's work. What? Y'all better learn that one real quick. You can put it on TikTok. You can put it on X. Your work plus Christ's work will never work. It must be his work alone that secures you before God. But when once God has granted you faith to believe him, the natural outcome rooted in love is that you would serve him. Does that make some sense? And so Paul talks about it like this. The work of faith in the labor of love and the patience of what? In our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God, our Father. That's a beautiful triad. The people of God should be committed to a a labor of love, a work of faith, and a patience in hope. That has to do with your ability to endure trials. When men and women have hope, they can endure a lot. Is that not true? And the goal of the enemy is to destroy your hope. This is how he can bring you into captivity. When he gets you to thinking that there's no hope, now you and I can be turned aside to foolishness. The Hebrew writer puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. This is the last verse before we go on. The apostle is writing to the Hebrews, and here's what he said. This is a promise verse now. You guys know promises, right? For God is not unrighteous. Watch this. To forget your what? To forget your what? And labor of love. Now watch this. Here is the expression of your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name. In other words, whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. Do it all in the name of Jesus. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved, but the name of Jesus. When the people of God do what they do for Christ's sake, it brings God glory. And this is the motivation that drives us to serve him. And notice what it says, which you have showed towards his name. How? In that you have ministered to the what? And you continue doing it. Right. The primary work of the people of God is in the community. The secondary work of the people of God is to the world. The primary work is in the community because the primary work is priestly and prophetic. Is it not? Right. So we are called a kingdom of priests and our ministry is spiritual. 
And we offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and services to God on the behalf of his glory as we seek to help men and women get established in the gospel. That is the primary work. So if you're wondering, Lord, what should I be doing in terms of serving you? It starts in the community, not outside of the community. It's important for you to know that. So we will leave that there because notice what it says. For all the people of God who understand serving in the community, God will never forget your labor of love or your work of faith. He will always reward the men and women that choose to do the hard task that we do in serving his cause among the people of God. You know, we found out through Moses, didn't we? Serving the people of God is hard. Yes, that's why we need faith hope and love. Under point number three, then retained by faith, we understood that as Joshua was dealing with them, he made this observation over in chapter 24. Let's go there now. Chapter 24, verse 16 and 17 to once again, hear how they responded to him over in verse 16. I'm going to start. Here's what They said to him when he told them that they should be committed to serving the Lord, they said, and the people answered and said, I'm sorry, go back to verse uh, 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 13. Here's where he gives the last portion of what God says. And I have given you the land for which you did not labor, cities wherein you did not build, and you dwell in them, of vineyards and olives which you did not plant. Do you not eat? Verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and do what? Serve him in sincerity and in truth. This is where we landed last week. Here is Joshua's final statement to the people of God before they respond to him. Now, therefore, fear, reverence, honor the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Y'all got that line? Those two qualities we dealt with last week, I told you that sincerity was the idea in the New Testament of something being incorruptible, incapable of spoiling, incapable of deteriorating. It has the idea of being able to endure. It is using the metaphor of an agricultural context wherein the idea is around around fruit. And the Bible tells us you shall know them by their what? And the Bible also calls all of us to bear fruit, does it not? It promises if the seed of the word of God is sown in properly, you and I will bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, what? 100-fold. Fruit will be born. But Jesus said it in John's gospel, chapter 15, verse 16, I have chosen you, you did not choose me. And I chose you that you should go forth and bring forth much fruit. Is that what he said? And here's how he closes and that your fruit should remain. And what he's talking about is the qualitative nature of our expression of faith as we serve him in the cause of the gospel. There is nothing greater, no greater joy, ladies and gentlemen, than to serve God and to serve him in the cause of the gospel. And I can tell you this now, there is no greater secret joy than to see men and women come to a saving knowledge of God. There is nothing greater, even with the angels, the whole of heaven rejoices at one sinner that repents. This is the cause of the gospel. This is the task of the Christian in our world. Please understand, if we have missed this point, we have once again drifted, have we not? 
If you and I are living comfortably in our world, and let's say we live in uh, the Western Hemisphere, and we do, and we don't know war like a lot of people do, and we don't know the levels of poverty like a lot of people do, and we don't know the instability of economics like a lot of people do, and we are not beholden right now to the kind of tribal conflicts that a lot of people do around the world. That's true, is it not? We have a few squabbles here in America, but not much. This is why people hazard their lives trying to get here, because you can live a really good life. But you and I, like the church of old, are very much in danger of having too much to be any good for God. You and I are very much like Jeshurun, and waxing fat and forgetting that all that we have, the Lord gave to us in order for us to use it for his glory. That's the danger that we're in. I know y'all know that. You don't have to give me an amen. I know you know it because as a child of God, you and I are always burdened with the balance between receiving from God and giving for his glory. We're always struggling with that. And I hope some of you get delivered because really the point of living is to give him glory. If the Bible says that we are to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength, it also says you are to love your neighbor as yourself. So if we have a vertical security because of the fullness of God in Christ, and we do, we ought to have a horizontal mandate because of the blessings of Christ in our life to see to it that men and women hear the gospel. Would you agree with that? What Joshua wants to deal with Israel on is their presumption that they can have Jehovah, i.e. the Lord Jesus, and this world too. So when he uses the word sincerity, it's a term that both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament uh, implies something that cannot corrupt, something that cannot perish, something that cannot fade away. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 6.24. Listen to it. In Ephesians 6, 24, this is what Paul says. Grace be with all them that do what? Love our Lord Jesus Christ. Where? In sincerity. Amen. Now think about it for a moment. I'm I'm getting ready to move on. Don't you need grace when you take Jesus seriously? Don't you need grace when you raise the banner of the gospel everywhere you go and you're dealing with a bunch of snakes and you are an iguana. You got that? Are y'all keeping up with me? Stay with me because see, a lot of Christians don't know what I'm talking about. Because we, we pull our banner down and we pack it away in order to just get alone. But the problem with that is God is not glorified in all places when that happens. Am I making some sense? And, and what Joshua is saying is you guys are not being called to go somewhere You have been brought into the blessing. Your job now is to retain the blessing. And I can make an application uh, in a very ginger but necessary way. What you don't use, you will lose. Like when God calls you to his glory, he's calling you to bear his name as Christians to the whole world. Now, you and I have to learn wisdom on how to do it. Don't get me wrong. We have to find our space. We have to we have to discover our assignments. I totally get all of that. I deal with young people on that all the time. You got to know when to go, what to say, when to say it, how to say it. Totally get all that. But don't fool yourself because you are the one who most easily deceives your own self when you say, Lord, I'll go. But don't. 
Okay, it's really important for us to know that when the idea of sincerity is being put forth, what it's saying is that you and I should be committed. The idea of sincerity means total commitment. I want to I want to make sure you get that grace be unto all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ with a level of commitment that when it's time for you to stand up for Christ, you will see it. The Old Testament puts it like this. It's the Hebrew word come, uh, tam, tamim, and it starts first in Genesis chapter six, verse nine. I'm going to show you the word. I'm going to show you a few examples in the Old Testament. This has to do with Noah. Remember what the Bible says about Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. His righteousness came where? From Christ. But he was also what? Perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. Where is the word sincerity? Perfect. Do you see the word perfect? That's our word sincerity. Y'all got that? Noah was a just man and he was what? Perfect in his generation. Now I want you to understand what's going on here. Here's the subject object dynamic. Noah is the subject. His object is the generation among which he lived. Did that make sense? The context in which Noah lived was a generation of people. Remember, Noah is the tenth from Adam. The world is going to end under Noah. He is a model of the end times, is he not? I taught you guys this. And what does the Bible say? He was perfect in his generation. What does that mean? Noah never, ever abandoned God. Noah never compromised the gospel. Noah never somehow created an opportunity where the gospel that he believed was also accompanied by all the other pagan religions that were at his time. I shouldn't stay here long, but I do want you to understand that when you look at the life of Noah, you're looking at a prophetic event, a prophetic epic of the end times where massive demonic demonstration is occurring in our society and chaos and collapse is occurring. And there's one man out of all the people that's standing for God. This is called sincerity. Everybody else is compromising. Everybody else is submitting to the tyrants. Submitting to the giants, submitting to the marauders, submitting, submitting to the thugs. This is how I taught you to understand Genesis six. Right. We're not dealing with a hybrid of demons and humans. That is so mythologically errant. Hurry up and forget that. What we're dealing with in Genesis chapter nine, uh, chapter six is the violence and the evil that's perpetrated on the land. Remember, God saw the hearts of every man that was only evil continually. And God says, you know what? I got to stop this. He gave them 120 years. And during that 120 years, what was Noah up to? Building an ark. What was he doing? Creating a testimony. What was he doing? Living visibly before the world in the paradox of them going to hell and him going to heaven. They're doing their thing and he's doing God's thing. And he is not hiding it in a corner. He's living for the glory of God publicly before the world. And I told you, it could have been, and I'm almost sure it was. You can't preach the kind of gospel that Noah did for a hundred years, building an ark longer than two football fields. Boy, that would be on every news station in the world today, wouldn't it? What is what in the world is that old crazy man doing? He's living for the glory of Christ in sincerity. 
in sincerity. And here's the other thing about sincerity. Y'all ready? Because I taught y'all this last year, last week. What, what Joshua says is you have to serve the Lord. And the idea of service is the idea of being a slave. And it's the idea of working in the fields as if you are a hired servant, actually cultivating vineyards and cultivating olive yards and doing what a lot of the people in our country do who are willing to take those lower echelon jobs. Are y'all with me? And I told you last week, when you are truly a servant of God, watch this, you're not hidden. Those brothers in the field are not hidden. I drive by and see them all the time. Do you? And a slave is not hidden. Also, the servant in the military is not hidden. That's the same thing. It's the same metaphor. When you meet a military uh, servant, that individual is not hidden. The Navy or the Air Force or the Army, they all have their uniforms by which you know they are in service to that branch of the military. When you and I are in service to King Jesus, we ought to have a spiritual uniform on that everybody recognizes I am a slave of the king. My son, who's in college now finishing up a degree in uh, like microbiology or something, he, he bought me a uh, hoodie, black hoodie. I love black hoodies, you know, that get you into trouble in the hood, but I still like one. And uh, my black hoodie has on the front of my shirt uh, Dulas Christu. Dulas Christu. Now, if anybody knows Greek grammar, that means a slave of Jesus. Now, because people don't know the Greek language, they're often asking me, so what does that say? The door is open to preach the gospel. The door is open to preach the gospel because your banner should not be here. Here, this is exactly what uh, Joshua was saying to the people of God. Another brother whose ministry was public because he was persuaded that God is worthy to be glorified everywhere is Abraham. Genesis 17, verse one. Listen to it again. Listen to it. Notice what it says. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty, El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai, Elohim. Walk before me. Now, didn't we just learn that Noah walked with God? So God cares about our halakha, does he not? He cares about our halakha. Our halakha is our walk. This is Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man that does not walk. Walk, walk. Walking before God is an evidence of faith, right? We walk by what? So here, Noah is walking by faith in a visible public way, and Abraham is walking by faith in a visible public way, is he not? And here's the mandate that God gives him and you and me, and our word is going to show up again. You're going to see it. And he said unto Abraham, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou what? Sincere. Y'all keeping up with me? Now let me make it very plain as we go on further into our text. You shall have no other God beside me. I am God alone and there is no other. And when you and I don't have that sincerity, we don't conduct ourselves as if God is the only true and living God. And all the other gods are idols and pagans. Men and women in this world are used to having plenty of gods. And that's what Joshua is dealing with here in our text. Look again in chapter 24. Let's work this through. I could give you many other examples. The Bible tells us this same term was used of David. 
King David, God said of David, David walked before me sincerely, right? But guess who didn't? Solomon. What's the difference between David and Solomon? Solomon embraced syncretism and ecumenism at an infinite level, did he not? 700 wives, 300 concubines, and an affinity of all kinds of pagan gods because he tested the idea, can I serve God and serve the world too? Am I making some sense? And this is exactly what Josh was dealing with, and I wanted to make sure we got that. Notice what it says there, here then uh, in verse 16. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should f- forsake the Lord and serve other gods. This is 16 of chapter 24. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up out of our fathers, brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the ways wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drave out from before us all the people, even the Amorites, which dwelt in the land. Therefore, this is an italicis. Watch this. We will we what? Also serve the Lord for he is our God. And I told you. The little faux pas in this text was the little word also. It's the Hebrew term law, and it means in addition to. Also, among, with. Joshua knew what was going on in their lives. He knew that Israel was frequently committed to worshiping the idols of the land. This is exactly why he said what he said when he said over in uh In verse 15, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which are uh, which were your fathers that that your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me in my house, what did he say? We're serving the Lord. So here is where we are before we close out on our last point with Joshua doing a very important thing that I want you to get the significance of. Joshua knows that these people are the children of the people that died in the wilderness, right? These are the sons and daughters of the ones that perished in the wilderness. What does Joshua know? The ones that perished in the wilderness, perished in the wilderness because they were idolaters, were they not? They worshiped idols. And now these children are indicating the same thing. Stay with me for a moment. I need to do a little history for you to get it. We're at the end of Joshua's life, right? Didn't I tell you that Joshua was in the land with them for at least 30 years? That means right now Joshua can look back and see how they behave. He's carved out the inheritance for them. They all have their land. They all have their homes. They all have their businesses. They all have their 401ks. Are they not secure? Didn't God tell them when you get into the land? This is chapter 23. Do not make affinity with the people of the land. Do not worship their gods. Do not marry their wives. Do not give your sons to them, because if you do, they will turn your heart away from me. Now, I'm just going to ask you the honest question so that I can curtail this part of the analysis. What do you think those people did? God told them, don't do it. What did they do? They did it. So stay with me, child of God. The application here to you and I is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I own. If you don't take my heart and seal it and seal it for your courts above, I will drift away from you into the plethora of idols that exist in this world. Do I have to spend any time telling you about the billions of idols that you and I are encompassed about with every day? Do I have to? So I'm just going I'm going to defer you back to the iguana on the island with those thousands of snakes. Every idol is a snake. I want you guys to all watch it. I'm going to ask you next week. This is going to have a quiz next week. Did you watch it? Every idol is a snake. Behind the facade of allurement, behind the image of beauty, behind the glitter and glory of the icon, of the proposition, of the idea, of the image, of the opportunity, of the allure is a snake. Behind all of these secular things that tug on our heart, that want our time, that want our interest, that wants our emotion, that wants our allegiance, are snakes. Are y'all hearing me? See, the reason you know what I'm saying is true is that if there were no snakes behind those images, they'd have no power. Snakes have power. We learned that from the fall of our first parents, did we not? That was the first psychological warfare and the first attack. Snakes will get you if you talk to them. You're already stupid for talking to a snake. But if you do, you're halfway lost. Am I making some sense? See them for what they are and then follow the tactic of the iguana. He'll tell you how to deal with it, okay? He'll tell you how to deal with it. But if you're going to make it to the top of the rock, you're going to have to run for your life. And you're going to see that when you watch it. And the men and women that don't will be taken by the snakes and paralyzed. And sadly, that's what's going on with our text. And this is why Joshua is admonishing them under point number two, point number one, retained by faith. Sub point A, we will also. How about we will only serve the Lord? Am I making some sense? Wouldn't that have been better? Wouldn't that have been a, been a better what we would call um, adverb on will? Will is the verb also as an adverb. Wouldn't it have been better if it was we will only serve the Lord? Since your Bible says here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Him only shall you serve. That's the New Testament interpretation. It's out of Matthew 4, verse 10, where the Lord Jesus is on the third temptation in the wilderness. And notice every time the devil talks to him, he quotes scripture. And what he quotes is the Deuteronomic code to let the devil know that the son of God was totally committed to God the father. Y'all keeping up with me? He is the only ultimate one that knows what it means to serve God in sincerity, right? But he is our hope, is he not? Remember what Satan said? Satan said, bow down to me. Look at verse nine. I want them to get this. Matthew four, nine. Notice what he says. And he said, uh, um, it's going to start at verse eight, I guess. Yes. Matthew four, eight is going to help you all with this idea. And the devil takes him up into an exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Is that not where we are today? Saints of God, bear record with me. Can we not see the whole world today through that little one eyed devil? Can we not see the whole world? Do we not let the whole world enter into our homes? 
Does not the whole world come into the sphere of our thinking, into the sphere of our emotional makeup, into the sphere of our psychological disposition? Does it not come and challenge us at the level of allegiance and obedience to Christ? Does it not seek to take our time, take our resources? Doesn't that little portal into the whole world system have the kind of power to actually bring you into allegiance to it at the level of wanting to transform you into its image? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And this is what the children of Israel are doing. And this is a wonderful text of scripture we're dealing with in Matthew chapter four. Do you know why? Jesus didn't go into the wilderness to be tempted for himself. He did that for me and he did it for you if you're a child of God. Please listen to me. The only man that could obey God in the face of the serpent was the son of the living God. He perfectly obeyed him. He said no three times. Blessed is that man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Why? Because his delight is in the law of his God and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So that out of Christ's mouth came scripture when the devil came with temptation. And here's the big one that you must understand. God gave the enemy the the power and parameters of influence and control over this physical, secular world. He gave it to him. The serpent wasn't lying when he was talking to the son of God and says what he says here. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. He showed him this secular world and his influence over everything in the world. Y'all got that? Everything in the world. He, he showed him everything in this. No, listen, please carefully listen. Think it through. Upon the fall of Adam and Eve, the world was changed permanently. It entered into a total collapse. This is what we call the Lapsarian doctrine. When Adam and Eve fell, the whole universe ended up under the pain of corruption. That's Romans 8, right? The whole heavens and earth travail even together now, waiting to be delivered from the curse of sin by the merits of Christ when he returns again. What is God doing in this falling, decaying world in which you and I live? He's saving his people. The first work of the new creation is the salvation of sinners. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a what? New creature. And so you and I live in a paradox. We are new creatures in an old world. Can I talk to you guys a little bit? Are you a new creature in Christ? Do you love God? Do you love the gospel of his grace? Is Christ altogether lovely to you? Nobody greater, nobody greater, nobody greater than Jesus in the hearts of God's people. Is that not so? But you and I live in attention because this world is coming at you and it's coming at your body because your body is still riddled with sin. The paradox of being alive in your spirit and yet still dead in your body also subjects you to the pull of this temptation. This is why the Lord Jesus had to go through this in Matthew 4 so that we wouldn't have to go through it. None of us would be redeemed if Jesus didn't pass this test. He's the sinless son of the living God. He's without spot and blemish. He is without fault. There was no error in him. He is innocent. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. You know what that means? He's sincere. 
I'm teaching you something. You better get it. Sincerity is to be blameless in God's sight. See what I'm getting at? And it showed up in Jesus's life, right? He was a hungry brother. 40 days in the wilderness. Most of y'all would have sold everything in the house. 40 days. Turn these stones to bread. He said, no. If you be the son of God and and the devil was there when the heavens opened up and the father said, this is my beloved son. And whenever God calls you out to be his child, the devil is coming after your identity. You must know that. See, now think about it. The father has publicly owned you as he is like that's what the Bible says. He's not ashamed to be called our father. Are we ashamed to be called his sons? If you are, then you and I have a problem because he loved us enough to bear our sin, to purchase us and to own us publicly. Our job is to own him back. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Is he not? No to the devil. No, no. Now look at verse nine. Here it is. Verse nine. And said unto him, all these things will I give you. Now, this is Satan talking. All these things will I give you. Now, how can he give it to him if he doesn't have it? Now, God gave it to him. So I'm trying to help you with your theology of perception right now. I'm trying to help you with your theology of perception. You don't want it, but you need to know it. The vast majority of everything that goes into your eye gate in terms of its expression, its phenotype, its manifestation is a consequence of demonic constructs. Am I teaching Everything that you and I are dealing with is a consequence of demonic constructs. Very little is organic. Very little is authentic to the nature and character of God. Virtually everything that you and I are observing is the structure and systems and principalities and powers and manifestations and dominions and landscapes of the satanic systems of this world. And we are so accustomed to them that we don't see them for what they are, a bunch of snakes. Can I keep talking a little bit? We're headed to the table, but it's important for you to know. Because listen, if your eyes are not, if your eyes are not opened, you are taken before you even know it. I I have to just let you know. This is why we're so passionate about truth here. Truth across the total spectrum. You can't tell me that you have efficacious truth and you can't see the lie of the snake when he hisses at you every day in the media. You can't tell me you're walking with Jesus. Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him and he told his disciples, you need to beware of him and beware of men. This is why I talk to you the way I do, because you need to be able to be on guard. You need to be alarmed. You need to be circumspect. You need to be discerning. You need to know when there's a snake behind that face. Behind that image, behind that icon, behind that system, behind that doctrine, behind that teaching. And you'll know it because if it's moving you away from Jesus, please hear me. It's not of God. Where is Jesus in it? That's your widget, okay? That's your widget, okay? You keep the widget working. That's how you stay safe. If Jesus ain't in it, it ain't for you. Unless God is calling you to put the widget in it. And some of us, he is. There are spaces and places that needs Jesus in it. 
but you better make sure that's your assignment. And then when it is, ask God to give you the grace to go in. Ask him to put on the full armor of God that he might transform your mind and root you in your calling. So when you go in, you got your spiritual hazmat suit on so that you will never be toxified when you're bitten by the serpent. The Bible makes that play. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Am I making sense? By the way, a lot of those spaces and places, God's elect are in those places. God's saints are in those places. God's angels unaware are in those places. And they need men and women to go in and do a rescue in the name of Jesus for them. Am I making some sense? Right. In fact, that's where we were before God saved us. Many of us were in straight up hell holes. We were in pits with vipers everywhere. And the Lord sent one of his angels in a human nature and rescued us by the propositions of the gospel. It's so true. It's important for you and I to get this. He said unto him, if you bow down and fall down and worship before me, verse 10. Here it is. Once again, listen to what Jesus said. Then Jesus said unto him, get thee hence, Satan. Do you understand how powerful that is? Get thee hence, Satan. Get behind me. That's the word for some of you today. I know this right now. Right now, here's what I know. You can get up and leave now. We got to take the table, so you got to endure me for another 15, 20 minutes. But you can leave now because this is your word. This is the word for some of you. When the enemy comes with these temptations, Lord, put him behind me. Lord, put him behind me. Because you can't put him behind you. Only God can. Am I making some sense? See, when you're in Christ, you can say, Lord Jesus, you see the snake. I see him too, but I can't do anything about him. Lord, help me. This is a word for some of you today because some of you are trapped and you, you need release. You need freedom. You need deliverance. Notice what he says. He said, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord thy God. Here it is. And him only shall you serve. No man can serve two masters. Same master spoke it, didn't he? No man can serve two. All kind of people are trying to serve God and. They're fooling themselves. And this is what, this is what Jesus is talking about. This is what Paul meant in Ephesians 4. This is what Joshua is saying. Let's go on now. Let's, let's work our way through the rest of this. So what Joshua says in verse 19 and 20, as we looked at it, um, the text says, and Joshua said unto the people, verse 20, uh, chapter 24, you cannot serve the Lord for he is one, a holy God. Secondly, he is a jealous God. Thirdly, he will not forgive your sins. You guys see those three? Let me do a small, brief exegetical analysis of those three. The reason why you can't serve God and other gods is because God by nature is holy. And what that means is he will not tolerate having to sit near, stand near, be with in the vicinity of all the other unclean demons in your life. Did that make some sense? The one true and, whole, one true and living God is holy. You don't visualize him in scripture hanging out and tolerating and engaging with as equals other pagan gods. I don't care about all the icons you see running together in your ecumenical, you know, uh, grid of, you know, the cross and the star and the moon and the crescent and this and that. And the other thing that is your new world order that's coming for sure. But Jesus is not in that. Did you hear what I just said? Jesus is not in that. 
Jesus is not in that. See, the world needs saving. The world needs saving. And, and there's only one savior. There's only one savior and, and the world needs it. And so you and I need to be the kind of people who understand three things here. He's holy. Secondly, he's jealous. Y'all got that? Now, I'm going to just let you know what that means. He's going to get at you when you think you can have two or three, four, five other gods. Just please understand that. Right. Isn't that what he said in the in the Decalogue? He says, I am the Lord, your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto thee any graven image of anything in heaven or on the earth or under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to serve them. I am a jealous God. And I visit the iniquity to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Did y'all get that? So when Israel said, I do on the bottom line at Mount Sinai, you know what they signed up for? God getting in that tail. The moment they thought that they could bring another God into the house. And he gave it to them explicitly in Joshua 23. He told them, if you obey me, look at Joshua 23, 1. He said, now I have brought you into the rest that I promise you. Do you see, you see it in Joshua 23, 1? I'm just going to talk. I want you to see it. Rest in the scriptures is the metaphor of the shalom that a man brings to his family when he has gone before them and prepared a space for them to dwell and to live and to abide and to enjoy the fullness of the resources that he prepares for them. Did y'all get what I just said? Because what we're dealing with is as a uh, as a, a marital motif in the Old Testament is that Yahweh is the husband of Israel, the bride. Did y'all got that? get that? That's the Old Testament. So what God did for his bride was go before her and purchase a house and prepare the house and fill it with goods and say, now when you get in the house, act like you only have one husband. Did that come home? And I want you to look at it. And it came to pass a long time after the Lord had did what? Given rest unto Israel. That's called rest. That's what our girl Ruth found out, didn't she? Toiling, her husband died. Her sister's husband died. And Naomi said, child, I can't give you rest. And Naomi, Naomi said, cool, your people are my people. You're, where you live, I'll live. Where you die, I'll die. We can just be, to, be a couple old widows hanging out together. But God had another story, didn't he? He had a Boaz for her who could bring her into what? Rest. That's the theology. The gospel is about rest. And it's not just rest in the sense of your sins being put away. It's rest in the sense that Christ brings you in to the total package of blessings so that you are not only in his house, you are his house. Am I making some sense? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll see to it that you have your sins forgiven. I'll see to it that you're covered in my righteousness. I'll see to it that you have a new nature. I'll see to it that I change your mind week in and week out. I'll see to it that when you go astray, I'll whoop your butt, but I won't let you go. I'll see to it that I'll bring you back in. I'll put cords of a man. I'll put cords of love on you and I'll draw you back to myself. I'll see to it that when you go down, you'll learn from it. And when you go up, you won't lose your mind. I'll see to it that you bring me glory in everything you do. 
even though I might have to strip you of all of your idolatrous ways, I will not let you go. This is what God says for his people. And this is what Israel has to go through here as well. So it's extremely important. Let's go back. My time is up. I want to touch on how Joshua wants to resolve this now that you guys understand the point that we're making. Joshua 24, uh, verse 20, he says, and he will not forgive, uh, verse 19, the last part, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. You guys see that? So two things. God is holy. God is jealous. And he won't forgive your iniquities. I talked about this last week. This goes back to Exodus 23, 20. The angel of the Lord, who is the visible Yahweh, his name is what in the New Testament? Jesus. Y'all with me? The angel of the Lord, Yahweh Malach, he is the the visible Yahweh. His name is what? His name is Jesus. This is what we're going to learn next week. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It's written of me. Joshua met Jesus Right. When they came into the land, it was the angel of the Lord standing with his sword drawn at Jericho to let Joshua know that God had already gone in to make a way for the people to enter into their rest. Right. If the Lord doesn't fight our battles with us and for us, we are doomed. So Joshua knew he was not the one when he knows battles. It was Jesus when he knows battles. And if you and I ever win a battle. We have to say thanks be to God who always gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ must go before you. That was the promise. But what God said in Exodus 23 is if you don't obey Jesus, he will not forgive you of your sins. Pastor, help me. Y'all need help with that one, don't you? Here it is. It's simply this. If you disobey God, the consequences of the covenant will come upon you. It's simply that. If you disobey God, the consequences of the covenant will come upon you. God had told Israel, if you worship the idols, they're going to take over your life. They're going to be pricks in your eyes, thorns in your side, snares in your life. They're going to bring you into captivity. And then the next thing you know, I'm going to be your enemy because you're going to be my enemy. Then I'm going to have to fight against you. Then I'm going to have to have you to leave my house. I'm going to have to give you a bill of divorcement. Y'all got that? That, See, what God is saying is he's not going to put up with two lovers in the house. No two husbands. He will divorce you. Y'all got that? That's what Job is. See, in Israel, national Israel, don't know she's still divorced. That's a whole nother parenthetical study. But only wise Christians know what I'm talking about. Only wise Christians know that until they bow the knee to King Jesus as sovereign Lord, they are still divorced. And by application, when you and I do the wrong thing, he will chasten us to the degree that we can lose our rest, lose our peace, lose our joy, lose our fullness, lose our purpose, lose our confidence. You can languish on the vine as a consequence of disobedience. Child of God, if you know what I'm talking about, raise your hand. Let some of these people know what it's like when you live in rebellion against God and he lets you dry up on the vine. You bear no visible fruit. You have no heart to pray for others. You have no power to serve God. You are a slave to this secular system. I'm helping you. I just have to. 
because we're done here. We, we, we're going to move on to some happy stuff for three weeks. It's going to get all beautiful in here with the flowers and the red and the silver and the gold. And, you know, we get to feel like Hallmark with the snow and all that. We're going to be singing well and wearing our nice colors. And we get to talk about the little baby Jesus. But the reality is we're in a warfare, a real warfare. And here's what Joshua does. Look at what Joshua says. I'm going to see if I can walk through this and close it out. Here's what Joshua says. Verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you. After that, he has done you good. See it? See, this is where Christians mess up too. When God does us good, we think he's going to always do us good. This is where I believe we are on the brink of a stark national awakening in America. I believe that we're on a stark national awakening. Y'all listening to me? If you guys listen to me on my Monday show, you know I'm pushing the envelope of explaining things. Because I believe I know what I'm talking about, okay? I've been watching this for 20-something years. I believe that our nation is acting very much like national Israel. It is no incident that they're tied at the hip on a bunch of foolishness. And I believe that we have expired our time of mercy in this country and our rebellion against God on a multiple of levels. I do not believe that if we were standing before the judgment that we would be cleared of idolatry in this country. If God stood today to judge America, we would be one of the most idolatrous nations in the world. There's no reason for you to think that God has to show mercy one more day. I think we're living on borrowed time. And it becomes evident to me in the churches. People are so ignorant, so blind, so lost, so indifferent, so apathetic, so cold, so narrow-minded, so uninterested in the things of God. We're like the ten virgins, the five foolish virgins that did not keep the Holy Ghost to keep their lamps lit. They don't have the oil nor the lamp today. And they have fallen asleep. This, this is your community, your church community that does not have a word from the Lord about what's going on in our society. Am I making some sense? And see, the people that are out there that are lost children of God, they're waiting for you to tell them what the heck is going on. Since you the Christian with the Bible, since your Bible tells you the end from the beginning, since it gives you prophetic insight, since it lets you know what's going to happen in terms of the birth pangs of evil and trauma and judgment and tribulation, you don't even have a word for them. Y'all follow what I'm saying? It's extremely, and, and you know they're groping in darkness. You know they are. They can't even, they can't even secure who they are in their gender. And you and I don't have a word for them. Help me, Lord. You and I don't have a word for them. We got a big old fat Bible. You can't even fit this thing anywhere but in a dresser drawer. It's so fat. God loves talking to us. This is his text to us. He has texted us enough. Answer him back. Right. It's so very important for us to understand what's going on here. Here's what Joshua said. Let me let me let me let me keep going so I can shut it down. Here's what he says. Notice what he says. He says here in verse uh, 20, 22. And Joshua said unto the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Boy, we can be bold and arrogant, can't we? 
See, this is when you're self-deceived in your own confidence that you can do what you want to do. Here, please let me give you the caveat on this. Without Christ, you can do nothing. Right. Unless God works in you the will and the do of his good pleasure, you can talk all you want. You're never going to lift a hand to obey God. Raise your hand. How many times have you said, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to obey God. I'm done today. And that day has never come. Without the grace of God, you can't even think right, let alone move in the right direction. Lord, we need you across the totality of everything we do. This is so true. So when you're stuck and you can't, you got to simply say, Lord, I can't. A broken and a car and tried heart, he will not despise. See, and a lot of times God won't let you until you admit that you are weak and impotent. Otherwise, if you do it, you're going to steal his glory. You're going to talk about how you raise yourself up by your bootstraps, how you developed a theological plan, how you started praying in the morning and then at noon and then at night. Now, notice how you are getting big and he's getting small. Anytime that happens, we have left the gospel. Can I make it plain? So this is why he says, all right, you fellas, listen, all right, here we go. You have witnessed yourself. Jesus says, by your words, you shall be justified and by your words, you shall be condemned. Notice what he says over here in verse 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and sent them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote the words in the book of the law of God and took a what? A great stone and set it up there under an oak tree. That was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us. For it hath heard all the words of the Lord, which he spake unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest you deny the Lord. See it? Point number four. Just let me walk this through. I'm not going to unpack it just because of time's sake. It's a witness to Christ. What is the stone? How does God use the stone? I won't go back to the beginning, but what you don't realize is that God told Joshua to use some stones back in chapter four, verse one through five, when the children of Israel were walking through the Jordan River. Do you guys remember the miracle of the Jordan River? Let me walk you through this so we can observe the Lord's table. Remember, God told the uh, through Joshua, told the children of Israel to stand back 2000 cubits until the priests take the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Right. And when their feet touched the water of the uh, River Jordan, the waters abated all the way up to the city of what? Adam. And once it dried up, the priest went into the middle of the Jordan River and stood there with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. You guys remember that? So now God has made a way out of what? No way. And he did it through him who is the way, the truth and the life. Is that right? Who is that? That's the Lord Jesus, right? So you and I don't pass from death to life apart from him who died for our sins. So now the River Jordan is wide open. And here's what God told Israel to do. Y'all pass on over while the ark is in the midst of the river. Meaning we pass from life to death because Christ sustains us as our death in the middle of the river. Did y'all get that? We make it all the way to glory because of Christ crucified. Y'all got it, right? 
So what you didn't know in Joshua chapter three was that Jesus is the standing mediator that gets all his people over clean, safe into the promises of God. But chapter four, Joshua is told by God to take 12 stones out of the river Jordan. That's verses one through five. 12 men take 12 stones. Y'all got that? And come up out of the river Jordan and take those stones and put them on the land of promise. That's verses one through five. Did y'all get that? Look over at verse nine, verse eight. Rather, I'm going to do this quickly. Verse eight. And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of Jordan as the Lord spoke unto Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel and carried them over unto the place where they lodged, which was Gilgal and did what? Laid them there. So watch this. Stones come up out of the Jordan onto the promised land. But the text then tells us that Joshua was told to go back into the river Jordan with two other stones. Look over at verse 19, 12 other stones. Now watch this because I want you to see the gospel here as we close. And the people came up out of Jordan on the 10th day and the first day in the first month and encamped in Gilgal. Verse 19, verse 20. And those 12 stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. Verse 21. And he spake to the children of Israel, go to verse 23, because we've already got this. He's telling them what what happened for the Lord, our God, dried the waters of Jordan up before you until you passed over. It was a testimony. When people look at those stones on the land, they know that God got them over in a miracle. All right. So look at verse nine. And Joshua set up 12 stones where in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests, which bear the ark of the covenant stood. And they are there unto this day. Twelve stones out. Twelve stones in. Right. And what do you think happened once the priest came up out of the water? The rivers flowed back over and became normal. You've got 12 stones in the water. You got 12 stones out of the water. Those 12 stones represent the children of Israel, do they not? 12 stones in their death, 12 stones out their life. 12 stones in, they died with Christ. 12 stones out, they rose again with him at his resurrection. 12 stones in, 12 stones out. Israel is being taught the only reason they have the promises is because of him who is represented in that ark. The ark is what opened the water. The ark allowed them to come over. The 12 stones are a witness of that on the land. The 12 stones in the water are never seen again. That represents you and I in terms of our old nature dying with Christ on the cross. When we go into the waters of baptism, we die and we die permanent. Do we not? Paul made it like Paul said it like this in Galatians chapter uh, two, verse 20. I have been what? Crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I what? I live. Right. It's Christ that lives in me by his own faithfulness. This is the reason I'm alive. So he teaches our death in Jordan and our life on the other side of Jordan. Now, ladies and gentlemen. They were to receive this testimony by what? By faith. The children of Israel that would subsequently live in the land, they would raise the question, how are we here? We're only here by the grace of God. We're only here by the death of Jesus Christ. We're only here 
by these stones of witness and testimony. Now, Peter puts it like this in closing. First Peter chapter two, verse six. Peter talks about Jesus being a living stone. Notice what he says in first Peter chapter two. Wherefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay where in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. And the one that believes on him shall not be confounded. Who is that chief cornerstone? Is Jesus. Look at verse seven. Notice what verse seven, seven unto you, therefore, which believe he's what? But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders have disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. The stone points us to Jesus because Jesus is the only durable thing in the world. He's the foundation stone to our life. And according to Paul, Ephesians 2.20, he's the cornerstone of the building of the church. You and I wouldn't be in this blessed place of believing the gospel if Christ was not laid in his death at Calvary as the stone upon which we are built. Are y'all walking with me? It's important, it's important as we close to understand that our life is built on that stone. It's built on the testimony of the life and death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I would not even be part of the body of Christ if it wasn't for the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we will talk for the next two or three weeks about who he is. Once again, may the Lord give us grace to do just that. We're going to have the offering at this time and we're going to have the Lord's table and then we're going to close in a word of prayer. Amen. Amen.